could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me virtually today is Logan Camden. This is probably going to be our only show this week just because Logan is back home and obviously wants to spend some value time with his family. And next week, honestly, we might only do one show again because then I will be out of town and on a bit of a vacation. So we'll figure that out as we go. But we do have a pretty thrilling show for you all today. We've got to talk NFL and NBA because although we are in the NFL offseason, obviously a couple of major stories today and none bigger than the trade between the Denver Broncos and the Seattle Seahawks that sent Russell Wilson to Denver in return, the Seahawks got Drew Locke, Noah Fant, Shelby Harris, a pair of firsts, that includes the number nine overall pick this year and a first rounder next year, two seconds, and a fifth in exchange for also the Seahawks' fourth round pick this year. So Logan, obviously, I mean, this just really shakes up a lot of dynamics league-wide. We had heard about the Broncos as a long time as a potential destination for some top-tier quarterback, just given how good their roster is. A lot of people thought it would be Rodgers. It ends up being Russell Wilson. What is your initial reaction to all of that? Well, I, I first, uh, I, I think it's crazy how much uh, movement there is in this trade. Uh, I wanted to look at other examples in NFL history and just like compare, uh, you know, how many just pure assets were moved here. Uh, that second round, one of the second round picks you mentioned is number 40 in this year's draft too. So it's a little extra uh, ammunition right off the bat that, uh, that, um, excuse me, that uh, Seattle's going to get in this trade as well. But uh, you think about, you know, Herschel Walker getting moved to the Vikings from the Cowboys. Uh, you have six players moved in that, three firsts, three seconds, and a third. Uh, Ricky Williams, you get the entire draft and then an additional first. Uh, the Eric Dickerson trade, three firsts, three seconds. And then I looked way back, uh, John Hadle got moved for two firsts and two seconds. But, I mean, it's a lot. You're getting back. Uh, I think Drew Locke's kind of a washed asset, Carson. I don't really know what you if you expect any kind of... I don't know, like, is there any hope for, for Drew Locke's career? I think he's just kind of a mediocre quarterback. I don't really know if you have any other greater hopes for the rest of uh, his career. Noah Fant's a really young, intriguing prospect, uh, but I think it's a, it's a pretty good mutually beneficial trade, and I'm glad that uh, Seattle was able to get this haul back for us. They're a team that desperately needs picks, and Denver is a team that desperately needs good QB play. I mean, you think about... Uh, you think about the struggle that they've had in finding their guy over these past few years, if it's Drew Locke, if it's Paxton Lynch, the Brock Osweilers of the world. Um, you know, I mean, uh, we put up on one of our uh, original posts uh, on Instagram, Carson Nerd Sesh, uh, uh, you know, for the nerds, uh, the Broncos took seven QBs in the 2010s. Like, they, they've they been looking for their guy for a long time after Peyton Manning. If you want to get into the Case Keenums, the Teddy Bridgewaters, the Joe Flacco, what Russ gives them is invaluable, and it's consistent, great, Pro Bowl, All-Pro level uh, QB production, and they've been desperate for it since Peyton left. And uh, you look at the myriad of weapons they have on offense, uh, Jerry Judy, K.J. Hamler, uh, Cortland Sutton. Like, this is going to be an explosive offense next season. It's just... Um, it just kind of sucks the spot they're in, Carson. The only downside of this is I don't know if it's good enough to get them to win the division, you know, because you're going up against Patrick Mahomes, uh, you know, head-to-head. But uh, it makes them a – I think it makes them a Super Bowl contender, whatever questions you have about the defense. I know this offense is going to be electric. And, uh, 
so, I mean, I think it's worth it. I think they're Super Bowl contenders. I think you're getting yourself an MVP-level QB. And, yeah, I, I think it's mutually beneficial on both sides. Um, Seattle, obviously, is going to have to cash in by making the right calls with these draft picks, but they're a team that needed to kind of hit the reset button, and Denver's trying to reload. Uh, I love it, and I'm glad Russ is out of Seattle can actually maybe win another Super Bowl. Yeah, I think that the Broncos are certainly contenders at this point. And if you just look at what they were able to accomplish this year with really thoroughly mediocre quarterback play, they had a positive point differential overall on the year. They were 500 in games that Teddy Bridgewater played because it's a top three scoring defense and it's one of the best secondaries in football. And there is so much skill position talent here from the running back position to the wideouts, and the loss of Noah Fant does matter. That dude is very good, but the depth of quality receiving targets that you have in Denver is really, really impressive with a top two guys in Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy who I think can be really dynamic. So, yeah, I think that it is terrifying. I mean, I understand that Russell Wilson is coming off of his worst season and a decent amount of time, but I just think there's so many factors that go into that. Like, really wasn't much of an incentive for them to go out there and ball because the Seahawks just didn't have the roster and obviously he gets disrupted by the hand injury and didn't totally look himself, but still ends the year being efficient. And, I mean, two years ago, he had 25 passing touchdowns through seven games or whatever it was and ended the year with 40 and again it was injury that sort of affected the tail end of that season. So I think he's still clearly a top 10 quarterback, and we have seen what a top 10 quarterback can do upgrading a very good roster. And I don't want to compare the Broncos to the Rams because the Rams were a double-digit win team with Jared Goff at the helm. That's quite the accomplishment. But nevertheless, they were elevated from losing early in the postseason without really making a ton of significant... Well, that's not totally true because they did add OBJ and Von Miller through the season, but they also lost Robert Woods, so that's you know sort of canceling out there. But took a pretty darn similar roster, and Matt Stafford elevated that to a Super Bowl champion. And I think that you should certainly expect Russ to add like three, maybe four wins to this Broncos team, and I think most importantly, just makes them a team that actually has the potential to go out there in the postseason and have a truly dynamic aerial attack, have a quarterback who can march you down the field in the last few minutes. I mean, Russ's record in close games over the years has just been ridiculous. He consistently elevated Seattle teams to 11-12 wins that, frankly, in recent years, I don't think were as talented as this Broncos team is right now. So... This was the missing piece. I mean, they're not perfect. They're going to have to compete with some really tough teams consistently in that division. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the postseason, I feel like this is a team that will be at least in the outskirts of the conversation for probably a Super Bowl. Yeah, and I, the only thing I'd add to that is, uh, I mean— Russ is finally also getting to play behind a really talented offensive line, and that's something that's, you know, the Seahawks have just not had. You know, he's been, uh, like you said, successful in spite of the team, successful in spite of the O-line. This is a really talented O-line. You've got a really great running game behind uh, Russell, too. And also, I think this trade hands down, Carson, makes the uh, AFC West uh, the best division for quarterbacks in all of football, right? I mean, Pat, Russ, oh Herbert. Best division of our lifetimes for quarterbacks. Yeah. 
I, I, I actually think I would agree. And then, I mean, Derek Carr in a schlub, you know, I mean, he's top half of the league. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is, it's going to be a really fun uh, division to watch next season. And uh, I don't know. I don't know where it puts them among. Again, we got, we still need free agency in the draft to play out, but uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, who would you say initially, like, if you had to pick a winner then? I mean, I it's it's Denver, right? Like, I, I could give I, – I could care less about giving up the assets. I think what Russ gives you is just invaluable. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a big-time win, and it is a lot of assets. Like, I think the Seahawks come out of this pretty okay. I mean, obviously, like, two firsts and two seconds. That is pretty darn good value and a real quality plus starter and no offense. Like – that's good value, but at the end of the day, they're so far away now, and the one dude who was consistently keeping them afloat and covering up all of their still glaring issues, but not as glaring when you're winning 10-plus games because you have an MVP-level quarterback, losing that guy is painful, and now they need to execute in the draft in a way that they haven't consistently in recent years and so yes they got I think really good return as far as assets your roster was not going to be close enough in my opinion to really go out and contend for a Super Bowl with 33 year old Russ I do think that the breakup here was probably inevitable and I really don't think that that Russ wanted to be there so it's certainly a win for the Broncos it's probably a win for the Seahawks in the sense that They had to do something like this, but I think it's also a painful concession, and they're just a lot farther away, certainly, than they were at the end of last season, for example, when, again, they were a 12-win team, and, uh, you know, were unreal offensively for half the year, and then were really good defensively for half the year, and then regressed as much as any team in football, and now they don't even have the guy who has defined their franchise for more than a decade that's a pretty big switch in direction and probably not ideal, but again, I think probably necessary at the same time. Yeah, and I mean, uh, this could, I mean, Carson, do you think, uh, personally, I think this might be Pete Carroll's last year as either a head coach or just in Seattle. Like, I think that that's kind yeah. of probably where this naturally moves to next is just kind of a uh, more of a franchise reset. But yeah, I, I agree on all points. Totally. I don't really see the value in keeping around 86-year-old Pete Carroll when you're clearly launching a complete rebuild. And uh, I don't think that this is going to be a pretty year for the Seahawks. So what do you think just as far as their immediate future? Like, are they proceeding with Drew Locke? Are they going out and trying to get some journeyman, a Trubisky, somebody in that tier? I guess I'm rocking with Drew Locke. That's really weird to say. Um, I don't really know... Like, yeah, I don't think Drew Locke is a franchise QB, but, I mean, is there anything else Is there anything else worth investing in? Throwing a... I suppose you do have the first-round pick. Like, I guess you can go out and maybe take a stab right there. Yeah. I think there's probably other holes I'd address on this team first and use Drew as kind of a bridge guy. Maybe find a QB next season, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's tough because... You do have good position in this draft, but obviously, I mean, it's one of the more suspect quarterback drafts that we've seen in recent years, and one of the worst things you can do to yourself is stick yourself with a subpar option who you feel like you're invested in, and then you look around in three years, and it's like, oh man, we went all in on this guy, and we wanted to make sure we gave him sufficient runway, and then he just sucked. A little bit like 
what the Broncos did with Drew Locke, but not that extreme because it was only really a couple years. But yeah, it's not a good spot to be in. So I think that there's a number of paths, but at the end of the day, I don't think it'd be the worst thing if they proceeded with Locke just because it's like you're in rebuild mode now. This is, you know, a five-win roster. Like uh, the Seahawks are going to now kind of hit rock bottom and – if you're going to hit rock bottom, you might as well have Drew Locke be there. I don't know that it really matters all that much who is at the helm of your ship, unless you were going to try to draft your guy, and we'll see. I mean, maybe they do feel like that guy is out them there for them this year, but I don't think that they need to force it because they're very far away at this point. So just switching back to the Broncos real quick. You think that this now makes them a Super Bowl contender. Where do you think they would be among your AFC favorites? It's a good question. Um, I, I wouldn't put them above the Bills. I wouldn't put them above the Chiefs. Um, after that, I mean, it gets agreed. It gets pretty interesting, right? I, 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 I'm not a big Bengals guy repeat this season. Like, again, we, we still need the draft yeah. to shake out and stuff. I'd probably say third. Like, I don't think the defense is as bad as, you know uh, – I really think they're a really complete team. And, I mean, they're strong in the trenches, which is most important. And, honestly, I mean, we've heard rumors, too, that Von Miller might go back to Denver. Like, I don't know. I, I, I would probably say, honestly, they're three. What about you? I think that they're three, too. And I'm just tremendously excited to see what we get out of Russell Wilson because two years ago I thought he was a top-five quarterback. And, again, I thought that he was the MVP front runner through – half the year almost, and I think that this is now the best running back talent and run game that he's played with since Marshawn Lynch. I think that this is the best offensive line that he's played with in a long time, and I think that this is probably the best depth of weapons that he's had. I mean, obviously, the one-two punch of Lockett and DK has been really good, but then it's like, you know, your David Moores being your third guy, you know, Freddie Swain coming in this year, and it's just like Tim Patrick, KJ Hamler, those being your yeah. three and four guys, it's pretty damn good. So I'm excited. I think Russ is going to have a pretty special bounce-back season. I think he's going to remind a lot of people of how great he is, and I think that the AFC West has three top eight quarterbacks in football, could prove to be even better than that, and – all four guys are among the top half of NFL starters pretty much unquestionably in my opinion. Like, that's crazy. That's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I think that the Broncos will be in the thick of it. I agree with you. Chiefs and Bills, to me, there's just a different level of offensive dynamism that they've demonstrated, the level that they both got to defensively, at least when it mattered last year down the stretch of the regular season. It's just too impressive, I think. But after that... I think that there is a spot on the podium for the taking, and all you got to do is get yourself within striking distance, and if you have a quarterback like Russell Wilson, you can go to toe in those games, and you can potentially win. So that is the biggest story of the day, and so much fun and so exciting. The other major NFL story is that Aaron Rodgers is staying in Green Bay after all the hoopla of last offseason season. And then again, this offseason and the post about how grateful he was and how wine is gratitude for the soul. You better drink it all up while you can or whatever the hell that guy said. He's back in Green Bay. What's your reaction to that? 
I mean, the Packers have to win a Super Bowl. Like this is, <laughs> you pay you pay all this money out to Rodgers. I mean, this is a crazy contract. Four years, two hundred million dollars. Um, you have to win a Super Bowl. Like, there's no more. If if we come away from this, if honestly, with the way things are trending and the way I I, I really wonder if Rodgers makes it through those four years, either in Green Bay or just in general. Like, it just seems like retirement's on his mind a lot, so I just wonder if he's going to actually make it through. But, I mean, I don't know. Only getting, what, they only got one Super Bowl with Brett Favre initially. If you come away with two QBs of this caliber for, and I'm not, I don't just mean to lump them together, for 40 years and you come away with two Super Bowls, it's disappointing. And to have Rodgers for this long and only have one ring, to have all of this misfortune in the playoffs, you have to win a ring. Um, it's the right thing to do. I mean, he's kind of like Russell Wilson, I think, in the sense that he's the glue that keeps your team together. He's been the reason that the Packers have been relevant all of this time. And, like, don't get me wrong. I thought last season, you know, it was the best defense that we had seen from Green Bay since they won the Super Bowl. But Rodgers makes this thing go. Don't get it twisted. You know, I mean, they've had mediocre running games. Rodgers played damn near perfect football last season. That's why they were good. And you just can't afford to lose a guy like that. I mean, genuinely, the Packers go to what, a 6-7 a win team with Jordan Love at the helm? Like, you had to go in and do this. I also think, I think Rodgers played this perfectly. I, I mean, you get the offer, apparently, that the Steelers are going to maybe come in and swoop. You get a little uh, pressure applied up. All these rumors swirling and just force the Packers to pay him out. Um, they had to do it. You can't afford to lose somebody like Aaron Rodgers. So, well played. I mean, the bottom line is you couldn't, you can't afford to lose a guy like Rodgers. And, uh, and they kept him. So, yeah, I'd say that both sides come out winning on this end. But you've got to the, – the time is now, man. The, the Packers have to win a Super Bowl with this contractor. It's a letdown. It's a disappointment. Well, I completely agree on the Packers' perspective and that this is basically a non-decision for them. I really don't care how much money it is. I don't care how old Aaron Rodgers is. Like, you guys have won 13 games in each of the last three seasons. He is the two-time reigning MVP and is still very clearly a top-three quarterback in football. And not a ton of indications that that level is going to drop off anytime soon. I mean, his poise and accuracy and decision-making is just so phenomenal that even as he's lost something athletically, he's won back-to-back MVPs. So, yeah, I think that they absolutely had to go and do this, certainly. I am a bit surprised from Rodgers' perspective just because I feel like when you have repeatedly express the same frustrations and you have so many instances of these painful shortcomings and he just seems so thoroughly consistently discontent you talk about him pondering retirement it's just really surprising to me that he would go right back and not instinctively just try to shake things up just because it's so easy to talk yourself into a situation being better we don't know if Denver would be a better football situation for Aaron Rodgers. I mean, I think that it's probably a better overall roster, but I am just surprised at the seductive power of, okay, well, I've had these frustrating ends to the season here. I want to go somewhere else just because I can convince myself that that'll be different and that'll be better. I'm surprised that that didn't win out and that just the seeming gradual 
friction between Rodgers and so much of the Packers franchise didn't end up winning out. So I'm really more just kind of surprised than anything else. But yeah, I think that the Packers will again be really good. But I agree with you in that they are highly dependent on him to make them this level as a football team. And I didn't totally buy into them as, you know, one of the top tier Super Bowl teams this year. They were extremely consistent, but again, they didn't really blow teams out a whole lot. Their point differential was pretty unimpressive compared to their record, and yeah, I just think they were so clearly so dependent on Rodgers covering stuff up and winning close games and never turning the ball over, and I just feel like we have seen some of their limitations, so it'll be interesting. I mean, I think that they need to bolster their weapons clearly I don't know how many years in a row you want to go with Devontae leading the team by a thousand yards and receiving but I don't think that that is ideal Uh, and you know I think that they're an above average team defensively I don't think they're an exceptional one and situationally had some issues this year 23rd on third downs 30th in the red zone so they'll be really good because they have Aaron Rodgers they had to do this and you can't complain about it I just, I'm surprised. I felt I thought Rodgers was going to try to go to Denver. I thought that he was going to go team up with Nathaniel Hackett and the boys and, you know, get just a completely different depth of weapons and also phenomenal running back talent and better defensive talent. And it's like, okay, it's a different situation. At the very least, you have that as well. And that's not what happened. So I'm mostly just surprised on that front. Yeah, I, again, yeah, for, for Green Bay, this is a, it's a risk you can't afford to take. And I'm genuinely surprised, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, you said it, dude. You go to Judy. You go to the guys where your weapons are so much better. The line is better. I feel like the entire situation is better uh, just surrounding you. Um, and, I mean, that's part of the frustration, too, right? You talk about Devontae Adams, um, you know, being the number one guy and them not really replenishing weapons. I mean, that's part of the frustration, right? I mean, they use a first-round pick on another QB instead of going out and actually getting Rodgers some help. And I hope they do them right in this year's draft, man. I know they uh, they swung with uh, they swung with that other Rodgers boy um, in the draft. I, I hope they go out and actually get him some more offensive help. I mean, what do you think the biggest need is for Green Bay now that they've brought back Rodgers? I'd say probably corners too behind like uh actually I like Alexander and Stokes maybe that isn't the number one spot to go but I'd probably say wide out and then I don't know wide out I think is their number one need again just getting more weapons for Rodgers honestly yeah I think that I probably agree Uh, you just need to find a way to get a really good number two and if they do that again they'll be right in the conversation again but I don't know it's going to be a pretty similar football team overall, I would think, to last year. All right, any final thoughts on the NFL before we move on to NBA talk? All right, so we've got a few talking points here. I think that the place that we want to start is uh, with the fact that the Golden State Warriors have now lost five straight games and nine of 11, and they lost to the Nuggets last night in a really close one, not really a game that mattered just because Steph didn't play Draymond is targeting a return for next Monday so he will be back and all of this has happened obviously with him not out there but regardless losing nine of 11 games kind of has to set off some alarm bells so 
how concerned are you about the Warriors right now? You know, I mean, I'd say moderately concerned. Uh, it's tough. You know, I mean, for during the stretch, I mean, Otto Porter Jr.'s missed. Uh, he's missed some time out. Clay Thompson has missed some time out. Draymond has not been out there, so it's tough. But, yeah, I mean, you've got to be worried. And, and another uh, big reason of this is that all the teams that they're likely to draw in the first round right now are surging. You know, the Nuggets, like you said, they're 9-1 and one in their last 10, and they're not at full health yet. They're still getting MPJ and Murray back, and they look like they are just firing on all cylinders. You know, even with, you know, it's just Rivers, and uh, <laughs> you've just got Rivers and Bones Highland and the boys out there running alongside Jokic, and they're not missing a beat. The Mavs, 8-2 and two in their last 10. The Jazz, 7-3 and three in their last 10. And, I mean, I think that's the kind of chief reason to be worried because the T-Wolves or Clippers are just much easier draws in the first round. And with this struggle, I mean, they've conceded the two-seed to Memphis. So, I mean, I think that's yeah. probably the primary reason to be worried just about playoff seeding and matchup-wise. Um, I honestly thought the Nuggets game, not to draw too many conclusions off of one game, um, I thought it was kind of promising to see how close the Warriors kept it and how hard they fought, you know, not having Steph out there or Clay or Draymond, like... Uh, Moses Moody looked really good. Jordan Poole got some tough late-game buckets. Um, let me ask you this, because I think that's obviously the big concern about this is losing seeding, but, like, are, are you worried about their depth as much as I am? Like, I think that's kind of my big takeaway from all this, is I just don't know how much I actually trust the Warriors' depth. You know, initially, and again, it's just tough because we haven't seen Draymond in so long. We haven't seen Steph. Clay has missed some time. or It's just like... I don't know. I don't know if I trust this depth as much as I did um, before all these injuries went down. I guess his depth kind of scares me a little bit more. I don't really feel like that's my primary concern. A couple things really do worry me. Here's what I'll say about the Warriors' depth. They have a lot of guys who are built to come in and compete and be Swiss Army Knife bench role players, right? They do not have guys who are meant to come in and supplement the value of a Draymond Green as the guy who dictates your entire offense. Obviously, they don't have guys who are supposed to come in and fill in the value of a Steph Curry when he's out. That goes without saying. They're not going to be very good when Steph Curry doesn't play. But I still like the depth. That's actually not really a concern of mine. I just think the biggest thing that we've seen to me, that stands out is just the overwhelming defensive regression. This was the best defense in basketball for most of the year, pretty much the entire year when Draymond was healthy, and they're 27th in defensive rating over their last 11 games, and they've regressed to being a below-average offense as well. But it's not that they were an elite offense even when Draymond played. They were a really good offense. They were a top-10 offense, but it was the fact that they were just destroying teams defensively and when you lose Draymond you lose your best perimeter on every level of your defense you lose the guy who can match up with the opposing best wing the guy who can take away the rim in a lot of situations who gives you so much switchability who is uh, such a phenomenal leader and communicator and I think we've just really seen that wear on this team so that to me is concerning because Draymond is now coming off of what has been a surprisingly troubling back issue, you know, and it's good that he's returning and he'll have a few weeks to really tune up for the postseason, but they need him to be pretty much the peak version of himself. And then I would say 
one of the things that has probably made me a little bit more concerned about the Warriors as well is just that Clay hasn't been quite as good as I hoped for. He's been okay. You know, his raw output hasn't even been that far below what I would have expected 16 and a half a game and per minute. You know, that's pretty good production. But when he's shooting 45% on twos and 37% from deep, you're just not getting quite the insane, uber efficient, all around, you know, off ball offensive weapon and spacing force that I thought. And then the other final component is that obviously Steph just hasn't been Steph, man. And, uh, that has been very consistently the case now for a good portion of the season. Like the dude is shooting sub 38% from deep and is shooting sub 52% on twos. And, you know, the three-point mark is the lowest of his career. The two-point mark is the lowest since his first season that he was an all-star. And like these trends just have continued. So I just think when he isn't superhuman and Clay is just solid, there is no path to this offense being elite. And then when you take out the conductor of it in Draymond Green, the offense is just going to be below average because you don't have the consistent creation from elsewhere. Jordan Poole is the second best bucket getter on this team. That will be the case whether or not Clay starts shooting better or Draymond returns. Like, Poole still is the guy with the deepest bag, the most one-on-one creation alongside Steph Curry. We've always known that. It's always been a concern to an extent, but... There was also the belief that, okay, you know, this is such an effortless machine, right? And the pure shooting of Clay is so valuable. And Steph's gravity is so insane. And he'll be so brilliantly efficient individually that maybe you don't need a true second star offensive creator alongside them when you then have the maestro that is Draymond Green. And that was just sort of the vision throughout so much of this year. But now those components haven't come together and we're here and we're nearing in on the playoffs. And it's just... My belief was always, wow, look at how great the Warriors are without being at full strength and without Steph playing his best basketball. And now it's just like, okay, well, when are these guys going to start playing their best basketball? And again, I don't ever want to just slam on the panic button because when Draymond Green plays, the Warriors are 28-6 and and they were the best defense in the NBA. But yes, I do think we've seen some of their issues exposed. I do have concerns about them. And I absolutely think that you are right in that losing the seeding is a big deal, bro. Because the Timberwolves have been playing really well. Sorry, don't care that much. I mean, I I don't see a world in which the Warriors with Draymond Green lose a series to the Timberwolves or, or even that seriously threatened. But the Dallas Mavericks and the Denver Nuggets over the last 30 games have been among the best teams in the NBA. I mean... We'll talk about the Mavs in a bit, but the defensive ceiling they've reached, the level Luke is playing at, the Dinwiddie addition, he's been really good as of late, and the Nuggets, obviously, have the best player alive and will be getting back Jamal Murray and MPJ. The Warriors could lose to either of those teams if they don't get it together, and I just didn't expect them losing in the first round to be a possibility a month and a half ago, but here we are. So yeah, I'm concerned. I think if this matters... I still think that they're number two for me out west at full strength, but I don't think I could take them over the Suns just given the consistency we've seen from them, and I do think they are a lot more vulnerable, and Steph needs to be superhuman. Draymond needs to be the best version of himself. I think Clay probably needs to make you know, a few more shots out of every hundred, and uh, then I'd be feeling really good about the dubs again. 
Yeah, the Suns are concretely number one for me out west. Like that's a no brainer. And I mean, especially even after seeing them, uh, seeing them against the Bucks too, without uh, CP, without um, Devin Booker. I mean, campaign just stepped into that game, and you know they didn't even look like they had lost a whole lot. The Suns are so machine like. Uh, you know, I I, I don't know. It really, depending on the matchup, I may take the dubs to get upset. You know, I mean, we're, we're going to need to see what Draymond, uh, what this team looks like with all three of these guys. It just sucks there's so little time left in the season. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I expect it to work as well as anything else in the league. It's Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green all back together. But, again, we're still working in theoreticals, and it's just not where I wanted to be at this point of the season. You know, wondering what these three are going to look like all together on the court at the same time. Um, we're going to have to ask this again when we get to see these guys, but it's it's scary, man. I, I don't think I don't think I'd take them if, if they drew the Nuggets or the Mavericks right now, and I mean that. I Probably the Nuggets. I'm, I'd probably still take them against the Mavs. I don't think I'd take them against the Nuggets, though, man. So what's your biggest concern about the depth? My biggest, honestly, is at that backup five spot. I guess yeah. you're going to run Draymond at that five spot sometimes. But just, like, I think that, um, I think Bielitsa is kind of unplayable. Um, you just have Kevon Looney as your other real dependable big in the rotation. And I guess, like, I don't know. I don't know if James Wiseman's the answer. Just Jokic really scares me in a, in a playoff series against the Nuggets, man, in terms of just being up on him for 48 minutes, you know, just having to rely on Looney. I... I don't know. Jokic scares me against anybody, obviously, because it's Jokic, but yeah. um, he, he does scare me against the dubs heavy. Yeah, well, I mean, Wiseman is now cleared to come back and play in the G League again. I think expectations for him need to be as low as possible because you are getting last year's James Wiseman, right? Like, there has not been the opportunity for basketball development in terms of skill, in terms of in-game experience and developing his maturity and decision-making and positional defense. Like, the guy hasn't been healthy. And last year's James Wiseman was basically a really big, really good athlete. And that's a guy who can find a role in a rotation. It's certainly not a game-changing player. And I just think that he, against Nikola Jokic, I don't know, Yes, he matters. He's the biggest body. He's the longest guy. He's the best athlete. But it's like, does that really matter if, you know, the guy's just stronger than you and is, you know, cooking you with every pump fake that he wants and is touching the ball all over the floor and amplifying everybody around him so much? I just don't know. Uh, certainly, James Wiseman is not really making Nikola Jokic uncomfortable, in my opinion. So I do agree with you. I think that is probably the biggest issue. I still do really like the wing depth, though, and we'll see if Iggy can get back and healthy. I don't know how much he matters, honestly, with how good Kaminga has been. I, I still like the wing depth, dude. I think that they have dogs, and I think it's actually been a strength of this team for most of the year, and I continue to have faith in that. It's just, again, they're not built to come in and try to supplement the value that the Warriors are missing right now like they are meant to be the ultimate role players and when you aren't getting the production you expect from your best guys and one of your best guys is absent well then I mean again it's just like they can't fill those responsibilities so we'll see 
I'm very excited to see healthy Draymond. I'm very hopeful that he can make the Warriors look more like they did earlier in the year. But, and, I, and he will. I mean, they will look more like they did earlier in the year, obviously. I don't know if they'll quite reach that level again. But you have to think at some point the law of averages with Steph, man, is going to come into play and, like, he's just going to catch fire. I don't know. And if that happens, like, yeah, I think that they can beat anybody. Yeah, I mean, these last... These last, like, 13 games or so haven't been that bad for Steph. Like, he's looked closer and closer to, to you know, really good Steph, but he's still not at, like, peak Steph level um, that you want before the playoffs come. He's at, like, 26-7, um, 49-39 splits. Like, he's looked good. He just has not looked that's like— That's not Steph you know, you want... great, though. I know. That's what I'm saying. You want— do you want the best version of Steph? And we have just not been getting him. Um, I'd also say, I think something that you brought up earlier, last thing on the dubs, um, outside of just that backup five spot is just the perimeter scoring creation. You know, there's just the, in general, outside of Jordan Poole, there's just nobody else that you're trust. you know, him and Clay, you're trusting to get a bucket in a tough spot. So I'd probably say that too. Um, you know, Chris Chiazza had me losing my mind Jesus. again the other night against the Nuggets. Jeez, man. I mean, here's what I will say. It was really fun to get to see the young Warriors kind of run the show. And again, I mean, we've given Kaminga plenty of praise, but he had another strong showing. I thought it was a great joy to see Moses Moody go out there and drop 30. Poole was pretty exceptional running the show. But again, I mean, I just think that some of the stuff off the bounce that we saw from Moody was really fun. The catch and shooting value you always expect to be there. He's a guy who I thought was going to be more important this season than he's ended up being. But again, I just think you saw he's a guy who fits into an offense. He moves without the ball. Good athlete. And I really enjoyed seeing him get those chances. And he kind of went right at the bucket with a pretty impressive level of fearlessness, in my opinion, for a dude who, you know, has played sparingly. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, Moses, well, you're going to be one of our key offensive players in this game. Some tough shot making. I just thought that was very fun to see. It doesn't matter a ton for this year, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I thought Moody, Um, you mentioned him going to the rack hard. That was probably my favorite aspect. Just the secondary ball handling, too, that he adds. Um, I didn't realize that was a dynamic of his game. Kuminga, I, I thought, played pretty well, too. I thought Kuminga had a few real kind of bad plays late, Um, just bad decisions. Um, Like a couple late, I think he had like two turnovers in a couple of the last possessions of the game where I was like, oh, wow. Sorry, I just watched. I'm watching the Pelicans Grizzlies game. Jaws doing something stupid again. Yeah. Got me distracted. He tends to do um, that. <laughs> I thought Kuminga made a few bad plays late, but other than that, he's been really solid as of late recently. Yeah, I I just think his development has been so impressive, and he's better probably than I expected him to be when he got drafted. Once we saw him in summer league, I think it kind of put it into perspective to me how mind bending of an athlete he really is and was and that's been fun to watch all right so we mentioned the Dallas Mavericks ever so briefly they are I think one of the scariest teams going in the NBA right now and since picking up Spencer Dinwiddie you know we did a brief little conversation about how he had looked and he was averaging six points through two games and so there wasn't a ton to say but he's really picked it up since then so I mean what are just your thoughts on the Mavs right now? What the Dinwiddie edition has meant? And I've got a specific question about Luka that I'll ask later as well. But let's start with Dinwiddie. 
Yeah, somebody was ex- wasn't excited about these uh, acquisitions at the deadline. I thought it was pretty cool. Didn't you give both teams like a C or a C minus? I thought it was, yeah, because you're giving up Kristaps. But I said that I thought that Dinwiddie and Bertans were difference makers, and you were like, eh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, fair, okay. I did think, I thought Dinwiddie, I think Dinwiddie is now a guy, I mean, I, I didn't think he was going to be this effective, and now it's really looking like he's their second best player over this recent stretch. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think Dinwiddie is a guy that, They've really needed the guy that can just kind of create off the dribble, however inefficiently. He's looked good in with the you know new space he has on the floor because of Luca's gravity. But I mean, he's a guy who can just go out and get tough buckets, and I think that matters in a playoff series. That he's just a guy that can explode for you know sixteen to twenty five on a given night, and you need that um, in the flow of an offense. He's looked nice. He's hit his catch and shoots at a higher uh, his catch and shoot attempts at a higher clip. Um, He's been just surprisingly efficient. And I don't know, man. I think that Dinwiddie and Bertans are both guys that can potentially swing playoff series, and they've both looked really great in this offense. The Mavs have the eighth-best offense over this stretch, um, and they've been, you know, average defensively. So I I don't know. I, I really like the—I thought that Dinwiddie, that he could be a difference maker, and I, I still do. I think he's been really impactful. Um, has fit into the flow of the offense, not tried to do too much, and— I think it's in a better. I think it's a much better mental basketball situation too. It just sounded like Washington was a hellhole, mm-hmm. and Dallas wants him, and he's been contributing. Yeah, I saw. I, I love it. I think he's a guy who can help swing a playoff series for Dallas genuinely, and maybe help them get over the hump because they fit this Clipper wall these past two years. And I don't know. I want to see the Mavs win a playoff series. I think he can help them do it. Yeah, I've had such a complicated relationship with Spencer Dinwiddie. Over the years, (laughs) you know, I mean, I thought it was so much fun when Kyrie was out a few years ago and it was just like tough bucket getting nonstop and he was putting up 21 and seven. I loved it. I mean, I argued that he was I don't remember if I argued he was an all star at the time that we did it or if he was my first guy off. But I was very complimentary of his ability to carry an offense in a really difficult situation. I just think what we've seen from him time and again has been, you know, the issues as far as efficiency and the perimeter shooting and sometimes the insistence on, yes, trying to be the guy too much and being a bit ball dominant and all these things that have really concerned me. But he's been really, really good in Dallas. And, yeah, I mean, the thing we've always talked about, always, is adding that second Real perimeter creator alongside Luka. Jalen Brunson is really good, and I thought, well, you know, he's probably good enough to be that guy at this point, but Dinwiddie brings more value there, and it doesn't matter how great of an individual heliocentric star Luka is, you just need other shot creators, like if you want to make a run that really matters. And yes, Dinwiddie at his best can be that. My concern was always, well... What about when things are ugly? What about when Dinwiddie has his off nights? And I don't know. I still don't know if we have a large enough sample size to say, oh, yeah, this is a home run. But he's been tremendously efficient. I mean, 18-5 and on 55% from the field, 45% from deep. Those shooting numbers will not be sustained. But what's impressed me is the decision-making, really, is I don't feel like he's taking bad shots. You know, I feel like he's being decisive. I feel like he's being pretty unselfish. And, you know, solid playmaking. And he's just getting to the bucket, dude. And maybe that's what I underestimated the most is that the spacing in Dallas 
is just so damn good. And like he's a dude who with his change in pace, with his mentality, can just get into the paint very consistently. And he's been doing that and he's been finishing. So yeah, I mean, if you have a legitimate pick and roll isolation creator alongside Luca, who also understands that, you know, he's the second star of the show by a decent amount, but he can keep defenses honest. And, you know, if he shoots the ball well enough in spot up situations to where, you know, he helps the spacing and he'll certainly at least be a willing shooter and a guy who people probably feel like they should close out on, but you want him to actually make those shots as well, obviously to make the offense more efficient and functional. He can be really good. And, there's just no denying that he's been impressive and he's been good. And I'm interested in seeing how that continues to track, you know, if there is a, a honeymoon phase here, if there ever is a time where it gets a little bit uglier. But I don't want to be overly cynical about Dinwiddie because, like, he's a skilled basketball player. He's a dude who's been in some tough situations and has always, you know, found a way to give you the raw production and has had some really fun performances. It's just always been for me about the efficiency and fitting in. But... He's been damn good. Yeah, I mean, I really think he has. And by no means do I want to say that I'm confident in the Dallas Mavericks uh, because, like, let's 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 say this how it is. Their, their second-best creator is Spencer Dinwiddie. Yeah, like you said, as much as I love Jalen Brunson, that doesn't really instill confidence in me, you know, that their second guy to rely on is uh, Dinwiddie. But... I think there's enough cumulative talent here to potentially get them over the hump. I mean, the Mavs would... I don't know, Carson. I mean, if the Mavs draw the Jazz, like I think it's a real possibility that they can stretch the floor and outshoot the Jazz in a series to win. I don't know if I'd predict it, but it's definitely a possibility. I think I would pick the Mavs in a series against the Jazz right now. I just... I do. I think that the level Luka is playing at where he is like superhuman, you know, since the All-Star break, teetering again on being best offensive player on the planet. And with the spacing and shooting that I believe exists here and the defensive ceiling that they found, I don't know. I just feel like I almost have more questions about the Jazz at this point than I do the Mavs. I think the Mavs are really, really good. I mean, I think it'd be close and the Jazz would have home field advantage, home court advantage as things stand right now in that series, but, like, that gap is ever-closing. It's a half game now. So I think they're scary, dude. I think that this is the best Mavs team that we've seen. Uh, and I'm just very glad that Luka has gotten back to looking like Luka Doncic. So interrelated with that, let me ask you. You did not have Luka Doncic as an all-star. You had Brandon Ingram as an all-star. It was a controversial take from Logan Camden. But, you know, at the time, obviously, let's not pretend that Luka was doing what he's doing now. It had been a frustrating, kind of disgusting year from him. So, given how insane he has been, do you think he has played his way onto the All-NBA first team now? Well, I'd first like to say in defense of that, yeah, I mean, the Mavs were, uh, statistically, they were nine games better with Luka off the floor. They played like a 34-win team with him off the floor, like a 43-win team with him, or excuse me, a 34-win team with him on the floor, a 43-win team with him off the floor. So I, I told you right after we did that podcast too, I think this is going to age like milk, and I think Brandon Ingram is soon going to play himself off, which he did. Luka played himself on. Also, his counting numbers were crazy. Yeah. Luka was still at like 26, 9, and 9. 
Um, so I probably shortchanged him there. Um, he'd also miss some games too. So uh, that's just in defense of my <laughs> Ingram over Luca case. Uh, he might have, man, honestly. Um, I mean, you just think about the burden on him. It's really similar, in my opinion, to what uh, Jokic has to do in Denver um, in terms of just being that heliocentric star. Um, honestly, a short answer, I think so, probably. With, with Steph um, not being himself, uh, I think that's the debate. I think it's it's Steph versus Luka. Um, oh, I wanted to ask you this. Yeah. So I'm not sure. How do the all-NBA teams, how do they... Do you have to go two forwards in a center, or Correct. can I just go three front court? No, you got to go two forwards in a center. It's the worst. So I can't go Embiid, Jokic, Giannis. You cannot. That's whack. It's I guess so I'll go stupid. Jokic, Giannis, KD, Ja, and then that last spot is probably either Steph, Chris can Paul. Can KD be first team All NBA? Why couldn't he be? He played enough games. Who would you? Who would you would go Demar instead? Katie's played 38 games, man. I mean, I feel like, man, I think right now I would have to go DeMar. DeMar's played 23 more games than Katie. Future Carson here listening back. I just wanted to intervene to say I would actually take LeBron over DeMar for first team All-NBA. Goodbye. And you could try to do some hustling of the system. Like, I don't know, dude. It's so stupid that we restrict ourselves in this way. Like, it actually just hurts my brain to think about the fact that we can't just put the five best NBA players in a positionless game on the first team. Like DeMar DeRozan, we voted into the All-Star game as a guard, right? Well, when they're fully healthy, if you were to give him a position, you would say he's their starting power forward. You know, I don't really consider him to be a power forward. I consider him to be a pretty positionless basketball player at this point in his career. He's a wing, you know? And so I just hate that we do this. I hate that we do it so much. Embiid and Jokic will be one and two in the MVP race. To be clear, I think Jokic won Embiid too. Uh, they have been the two most important players in basketball this season. And it's just so stupid that we can't have them both. So that's a bit of a side tangent there. But... So you think Jaw's a lock in the backcourt? I mean, we could shell this out, I think, but I think with where the narrative is shifted with what no, he's no, been no, doing. No, no, not the narrative. Like, you, Logan Camden, you pick first-team All-NBA. I mean, I think that factors in. I, I'm more like predicting who I think is going to end up on there, and if I was predicting it, it'd be Jaw. If I got to pick, yeah, I mean, I'd probably give it to Jaw too. If we're going positionless, I'd have DeMar over Ja, and I probably wouldn't have Luke on this at all. I'd go DeMar, Ja, Giannis, Jokic, Embiid. That would be my first team. Um, Interesting. If it was positionless. So, just for context, Luka Doncic, his last 15 games, I said post-All-Star break. That's really not that many. I should have said, you know, the 10 games leading in as well, since February, really. 34, 10, and 9. <laughs> On 48% from the field, 40% from deep. It's just really unfathomable. So I think that with the trajectory that he's on, he'll probably end up on my first team. Like, he's still scoring at slightly below league average efficiency overall this year, but it's respectable enough 56% where when you look at the raw production of 28, 9, and 9 and just how things have trended, you kind of have to just give props to that. The one thing I will say, dude, and I am interested in watching this throughout Luca's career, is uh, his on-off splits, man, and his on-court numbers 
have just so consistently been underwhelming for a player who is so monumentally talented. And the on-off splits for his career are literally flat. It's, excuse me, this year it's flat. Over his career, it's plus 0.1 points per 100 possessions. And you can say part of that as well, the Mavs bench has been pretty good. And I think that that's true. And that does factor in as some noise with that stat. But his on-court this year is plus 3.6 points per 100. That's okay. I mean, that's not really great considering how good of a record the Mavs have. And over his career, it's plus 2.1. So, I mean, that's only, you know, one component of a player's case and of their value overall. But it's just really interesting to me that this is three years in a row where Luka's on-off splits are just not on par with his talent or with other, you know, superstar top 10 players because you can have fluky stuff within an individual year, but over a career, it tends to be a pretty darn good indicator of somebody's value on winning. And this is three years now. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is concerning, right? Like, has yet to win a playoff series. If we're just talking about legacy-wise for Luka. Well, okay. Well, sorry, I would just argue, you know, that's a little different. I mean, he's been outmatched talent-wise and has played some of the best playoff basketball we've ever seen in consecutive Carson, series. Carson, I mean, historically, I are people going to look back at that, though, or are they going to look back at the fact that he didn't win? Yeah, Luka's played well. All I'm saying is, is that... It's too early. It adds up. I don't know. I, I think it adds up. I think it is early to look at it like that, but I mean, it adds up. And I don't know. I don't want to put that label on Luka because he has played amazing basketball. And if Kristaps shows up last season, that's not even a thing that we're worrying about. But yeah, it is strange. It's very strange. How much do you think he gives back of that defensively? I think that's where the most of the noise in that stat comes from. Yeah. I think that that's true. And I think that also... It's, again, that by superstar standards, he has not been an overly efficient guy in his career, and he is sort of all-consuming. But I'm honestly just playing devil's advocate here because I think that I've been pretty consistent and clear in saying last year that I thought Luka could be the best offensive player ever. I mean, he brings you a level of scoring output and playmaking out of the pick and roll that, you know, is like only rivaled by maybe a Trey Young type as far as raw output, but I just think there's a different level of gravity because of his versatility, uh, the ways in which he can kill you, how he can impose himself physically. He can just make so many passes that Trey can't because of his vision and size. And then, I mean, there's the fact that he can be a mid-range maestro when he wants to be. He can score out of the post. Like, Luka is just unfathomably gifted, but it's interesting to me that that one trend has per persisted and you can kind of look at a couple reasons as to why that may be. And he's still, you know, just turned 23. He's very young in the scheme of things, but we've obviously imposed these standards on him very early because he's been a top 10 player in the league for three years in his fourth season. And he was the best 20 and 21 year old we'd ever seen. You said over potentially is the greatest offensive what player or season ever like over like even Jokic? No, no, no. That blows I said my that mind. Last year, I'm talking about when all is said and done. I said uh -huh. I thought that Luka Doncic he certainly has not had the greatest offensive season ever. He hasn't come close to that. But I said given what he was doing at his age, the combination of scoring and playmaking, the improvement that we had seen from him adding so much to his bag last season with the mid-range stuff and the post stuff, I thought, you know, there's a world in which this guy is the greatest offensive player ever in a 
top five basketball player of all time, like all these things I was saying. And now I just feel like I'm a little bit more aware of some of the flaws. But this is a weird time to point this out because he's been, you know, damn near perfect for 15 games. My final answer, I think Luka Doncic deserves a spot on the All-NBA first team. Who are you, you giving the boot? Man. Dude, I like... Don't want to be crazy here. I kind of want to give Jaw the boot, but that kind of feels wrong. I just like give Steph so much benefit of the doubt and default respect because I know how much he matters to a team's success just in a different way than Jaw or Luka does. And you obviously see that with the on-off numbers, but you just feel it with the off-ball value every single play. And, you know, Steph's had a career defensive season I don't know I I think that even though Steph's raw output is a tick behind Jaws his efficiency is better still by true shooting percentage it's crazy because Steph's had such a down year by his standards but he's just one of the most efficient scorers we've ever seen so down for him is still really good and I think I would still reward him maybe that's wrong though Maybe I'm giving Steph too much benefit of the doubt. I'm debating. I think I. Yeah, I don't know. I think I'd. I think I'd probably go. Traditional All NBA rules. I think I'm probably still giving Luca the boot, just based off pure team success. But again, I don't know if that's the right call. I'm not booting Jaw. I think the debate for me is between Steph and Luca. Yeah, I, honestly, to me, it feels like they're all in the same tier now. I think Lucas played his way right into that. I think Jaws played his way up. I think Steph's played his way down. I think that you could argue, to me, a combination of the two of any of the three of them. And that's actually going to be a pretty fun debate, I think, once we get to All-NBA time, seeing how that shakes out. Okay. Any other thoughts on the Mavs? All right. So let's talk about a team that has been trending in the opposite direction, very much so. The Brooklyn Nets have lost four straight games. They are below 500, and yes, a lot of that slippage occurred without Kevin Durant. KD is now back, though, and they have still fallen below 500. We have not seen Ben Simmons. Joe Harris is out for the year. It's just been blow after blow after blow for them. So, obviously, for much of the year, we've thought about this team's aspirations and expectations in terms of them winning a title. Let me just ask you right now, would you pick the Nets to win a playoff series at this moment in time? No, I wouldn't. Um, and I mean, part of that comes down to like seeding and stuff. And that's honestly, yeah. I, again, not to not to beat a dead horse with this point. I mean, but that has to be the biggest worry about this team heading into playoff time, right? Like, if they get if they draw the Sixers or Milwaukee or Miami, I don't know if I'm taking them. They need Carson. I mean, I, I think this is clear as day now. I mean, they desperately need Ben Simmons to, to show up. They need Ben Simmons to be out here to win games. They need Ben Simmons to come out here and clamp guys up to give themselves a chance. Like, I mean, there's no world in which they get to the sixth seed. There's no world in which they get there. It's just completely out of the realm of possibility. For the Nets to win a playoff series, they're going to have to beat... Um, I mean, they're going to have to beat the Sixers or the Heat or the Bucks, right? And I just, I don't even know if I can expect that when Ben Simmons is back healthy. The, 
there's been major defensive regression overall over the last 15 games. The Nets are 29th in defensive rating. And again, I know this has been with, you know, KD out, with Kyrie out, this and that, with Harden dragging his feet. Um, and so that's where some of this comes. But I, I don't know if we can expect them to get up back up to the defensive level that we saw early on in this season. And I think that may hold them back. Um, and... I don't know, Katie and Kyrie are hard to bet against Carson, but I just, they need to, we need to see a better defensive output from the Brooklyn Nets before I bet on them to win anything. And uh, I I think this is just going to be another disappointing year for them, sadly. Like, I, I don't know. I think this is going to be disappointing again. I agree. I don't really think you could pick them to win a playoff series right now. Like, they have 17 games to climb up in the standings. And right now, you know, not only are they in the play-in, they'd have to win two play-in games. I think that they'll get out of that spot. I think they'll get to the eighth seed, and I think that they'll probably even win their first play-in game over the Raptors. That's what it would most likely be. But if you're telling me I've got to pick them against the Heat or the Sixers with the two-way ceiling of the Heat, just the amount of really high caliber you know players what? they have. You know what? Actually, yeah. not to cut you off, Carson, I think that may be the best outcome for, for Brooklyn, honestly, is if they drew Miami in round one. I think that's the best case scenario for them. Better than Philly. And look, I've been a big Heat guy all year long, but if there's going to be a team that, that the Nets, I think, could pull it off against up high, I'd probably say, number one, I'd want them to pull Chicago. That's not in possibility. Yeah. Miami, I think they could beat. I mean, Miami's offense just goes yeah. into such cold stretches sometimes that I think for a series, I think the Heat offense could go cold and I think the Nets could steal one. But I I, I wouldn't pick it, but I think that's best-case scenario for Brooklyn at this point. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, I, I think it is the most likely scenario. You know, maybe the Sixers, I, I certainly would rather play the Heat if I'm them than the Sixers. But I still don't think they could be the favorite. I think that, yeah, obviously you're getting such brilliant offensive creation from Kyrie and KD, and you're getting just otherworldly shooting from Seth. But outside of that, dude, it's just like there's not enough offensive talent here that really moves the needle to bringing this group close to what it was last year, what it could have been with James Harden playing dialed in there. And then defensively, they're just not good. And yeah, we will see Ben Simmons, I would think. But is Ben Simmons with, you know, a handful of games to get ready for the playoffs? How is he fitting in? Again, I think that although he's a great defender, there are some limitations into how much he can just reshape this entire team defense when you're looking at a lot of liabilities on the floor with him. And then it's like... You know, obviously, most of his responsibilities are going to be on the perimeter, and one perimeter defender can only have so much impact on an overall team. He'll make them better, but I don't think he'd make them good. And then offensively, it's just like, okay, great. I'm getting some of his, you know, decision-making off the role. Like, we'll see how he fits in. Is he willing to play whatever role they need him to play? I just think there's way too many questions, dude. And it, it feels like... 
when there's this many questions remaining at this point in the season, you should probably bet against it. You know, there's sub 500, dude. Like, it's a very different situation in a lot of ways, but it makes me think of kind of the Lakers last year and that they had so many glaring issues so late in the year. And I was kind of just like, well, maybe they can just make it work because they have LeBron and Anthony Davis and, you know, they get fully healthy and it just didn't happen. And yeah, I mean, they were still never fully healthy to be fair. And again, the issues here are different and we haven't seen them with a guy who should be their third best player. But there's just too many questions, and I think the Heat are too solid, even though I agree with you. The offense goes into some dry spells. It's still a top-10 offense, though, and Oladipo back now. I mean, we saw his debut. I thought looked pretty good, dude. Like, I don't want to overreact to 15 minutes of basketball, and we'll probably do a more full conversation about him maybe next week after we've seen a larger sample. But his ability to preserve his athleticism coming off of like consecutive major injuries is pretty impressive. And he knocked down a couple triples and, you know, had some nice playmaking. So that's at the very least, at the very least, another quality rotational, you know, two-way wing who you've added into the mix for them. So yeah, I don't think I could pick the Nets to win a playoff series right now, which is insane. They were my preseason title pick. That being said, I thought they would have James Harden and it kind of matters when you lose that guy. And it kind of matters when you give that guy to one of your chief rivals. So I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, uh, briefly. Whew. Jason Tatum was serving KD buckets oh God, the other dude. night, man. That was one of the most fun individual performances of this season, in my opinion, dude. I was just jaw on the floor. When Jade, when Jadam, his new nickname... When Tatum is cooking like that, it's just like there's a level of basketball skill, man, that it's just, whew, and he felt so in control. He maybe forced a couple shots once he really started feeling himself, but for the most part, dude, it was just like maestro at work. Dude, and it's special with, you know, I think Boston's done a lot of, Jason and them have talked about this, I think Boston's done a good job of, you know, finding their identity, this and that, um, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, but I mean... I don't know. To me, it really seems like we've seen a mentality change uh, in Boston, at least from Tatum and them. Tatum just looks so much more comfortable. He looks so much happier. He looks so much more secure with the team around him. He looks more, in my opinion, confident. Like, in, I don't know, dude. The Celtics are really rounding into form at the right time, and a a confident Jason Tatum is a very scary Jason Tatum. Um, there's very few things like it when he's on, man, and that was... Like you said, it was very, it was really special to watch. Um, and wasn't anything KD could do about it. Like Tatum was cooking KD. Um, I don't know, man. The Celtics really excite me, dude. Yeah. And I will say, the path to the Nets getting where they need to go is going to be superhuman KD, superhuman Kyrie, Seth. Honestly, just being Seth. I mean, that dude's just so damn good offensively, and is really just filling a role. They need Cam Thomas to serve buckets, too. And they need Cam off the bench. I mean, you know, I trust Patty to do his thing, but then it's like you can get there to being a pretty good offense, but again, I just worry a little bit about the shooting and the spacing if you're playing Simmons, and they would need Ben Simmons to be really good. Like, I just feel like because of the fact that their depth probably doesn't compare, because they lost one of their three real star offensive creators and... 
you know, their otherworldly shooter, even though they replaced Joe Harris with Seth, you know, I thought that they were going to have both those guys. That's how it seemed when they made the trade and just complications upon complications for Harris make that impossible. And when you haven't demonstrated a competent defensive ceiling since early in the year, it's just, again, so many variables that would need to change. So I think that we're both being rational in saying that we don't expect them to just sort of waltz in and knock off one of the best teams in the East immediately when they don't have home court advantage. Not saying it's impossible, but I don't think it is the more likely outcome at this point. 100%. I completely agree. All right. Well then, ladies and gentlemen, we have made it through our agenda for the day. Lots of fun stuff going on here as the NBA regular season starts to wind to a close and some NFL offseason stuff going on. Very interesting in the world of sports. So we will be back again, probably just this one show this week and very well may just be the one show again next week. Appreciate you guys accepting that from us because we're still coming out with so much content. I mean, that's what they don't tell you. Have you guys ever heard of TikTok? Well... If you haven't, you should check it out. It's a great place to have your data mined and all of your personal information stolen by the Chinese government. TikTok, get it today to have your information sold and stolen. But we also make silly content there. We do silly, fun, trivia, zany, quirky content there. And also we do some sports takes. I just made a video on why I think Chet Holmgren might be my new favorite prospect ever. I said I think he's on the same level as Mobley last year, and he may even be better. So go ahead, peep that, and also just see all the trivia stuff that we do there. Follow us on our other social media channels as well. Instagram is at NerdSesh, TikTok, nope, Twitter, and Twitch are both at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can always find the pod on Apple, Spotify. Normally we stream. We won't be able to do that these next couple weeks because, again, we will not be together physically. You can check out our YouTube channel. Nerd Sesh is the name there as well. And with that, as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.